we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hello, everybody. You are welcome to the cabin and you are welcome to the show. I'm Kean, and this, of course, is Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. It is still mid-October. You find us still in the, in the midst of our sort of Halloween season of episodes. The cabin is surrounded by trees that are now becoming bare. There's still a bit of yellow and red leaves holding on there. It's still a re- it's been a really good autumn, actually. It must have been a particular unique combination of temperature and daylight hours that has just made it a really good show this year. Weather-wise, it's still fairly bright most days. We have had our first fairly serious storm of the sort of autumn winter season actually cork city got hit fairly badly this week if you're from around here or listening from ireland you might know and um, i'm in favor of supporting local businesses by buying stuff online if you are local and if and if you're listening from cork Uh, so a lot of the shops that you like or the businesses who have been very hard hit this week not just because of lockdowns but also because of this storm and that's kind of a a nice thing to do so i've shared a few things this week a few uh, businesses i really like and where you can buy stuff for them online my drink for this episode is not a beer it's a whiskey you might imagine given the subject matter we are talking about the great gray man of ben mcdewey that i might have gone with a scotch i'm actually little bit heretical i'm not crazy about scotches i prefer irish and i prefer like american bourbons and stuff like that i am absolutely willing to be corrected if anybody out there is an enthusiast and knowledgeable about their whiskies by all means get in touch send me in your recommendations for scotch i have had some uh, of what are considered to be very good scotches and they don't really do it for me but I'm willing to be corrected. So get in touch with us on Twitter. We are Strange Ireland. And on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Uh, this evening, I am enjoying a very small amount of Kilbegan Irish whiskey, which is made up in County Louth. And it is pretty yummy so far. Other things happening uh, this or next week, rather, I am recording an episode with my friends over at the UK Wildlife Podcast, which is an excellent show. They're doing really, really well for themselves. They have a tremendous guests on all the time, people who are really high up in the world of UK um, wildlife and naturalist stuff. They have a lot of people from with really great careers in sort of science presentation and uh, uh, sort of science communication. And next week, they're going to have my good self. Uh, You can actually listen to previous episodes where we had Neil from UK Wildlife Podcast on Wide Atlantic Weird. Most recently, we talked about uh, the John Wyndham books, particularly the Day of the Triffids. It's not really often that our worlds intersect. Um, in podcast land anyway so it's always good fun to record with Neil he's an old friend and really a tremendously tremendously excellent and knowledgeable and enthusiastic naturalist I always like having him on Um, way back last year when I was still in the UK uh, he came on the show and we did an episode about British cryptids and we talked about the Loch Ness Monster and stuff like that which is what they're going to be doing on their show next week so it's their special Halloween episode so that's why they're covering sort of weird or spooky topics and I'm going to be choosing two UK or British cryptids uh, to talk about on the show I'm thinking of going with 
the British Bigfoot, which I did on my show way back. If you want to scroll way back through the episodes, that was one of our first episodes. The format was quite different, but it's still fun and um, I'm going to enjoy talking about it. It's a really strange story and a really strange sort of a thing to believe in. For my second one, I'm not sure. I'm thinking of going with the traditional British uh, ghostly black dogs, the the black shuck, that sort of thing. Not exactly cryptozoology, more of a folkloric thing, but there is some crossover, and I think I'd enjoy talking to Neil and Victoria on the show about it. So that's the UK Wildlife Podcast, so hopefully you'll be able to check that one out. And uh, let's get right down to this episode. So all about the great grey man of Ben McDewey. This is a fantastic folklore slash cryptozoological story, depending on your point of view. Now, I'm going to start with a quote from a man by the name of Peter Densham, who supposedly witnessed this creature back during the Second World War. He was a mountaineer and a rescue leader on that particular mountain uh, during the 1940s. And he supposedly said... Come with me at dusk, when day and night struggle upon the mountains. Feel the night wind on your faces, and hear the crying amid the rocks. Though your nerves be of steel, and your mind says it cannot be, you will be acquainted with that fear without name, that intense dread of the unknown that has pursued mankind from the very dawn of time. So yeah, spooky quote just to get you started off there. We will get to Peter Densham's sighting of the Great Grey Man, but... This episode in general is about strange mountaineering tales. If you want to know a little bit of background on that one, do take a listen to our previous episode, The Horror Horn, um, which is a short story written by E.F. Benson in the 1920s. And it's very much based in the world of sort of European mountaineering as it was in the 20s and the obsession, the global obsession with the abominable snowman, which of course was a was kind of relatively new at the time. And uh, yeah, that's that, that episode is basically my reading of the short story, The Horror Horn. And it's it's interesting to me because it's taking this kind of, at the time, new idea of the abominable snowman from the Himalayas, the Himalayas, I think it's more correctly pronounced, and placing it uh, in, in, in Central Europe, in the Alps, which was kind of interesting to me. Now, there's a book that comes to mind when I talk about this stuff called The Abominable, written by Dan Simmons. Dan Simmons is on my mind again this month because, for whatever reason, the the TV show The Terror is getting a lot of traction online at the moment. I see a lot of people talking about uh, The Terror on Twitter. Um, It came out a couple of years ago. It's supposed to be an amazing show. I haven't gotten around to watching it myself yet. As you probably know, if you listen to the show, I don't get a lot of time for these long-form um, fictional dramas. But I, I would like to check it out because I'm a massive, massive, massive fan of the book. The Terror by Dan Simmons. It's all about, it's like a fictional supernatural interpretation of the the doomed Franklin expedition to the North Pole back in the 1840s. It's really harrowing, it's really upsetting, it's really claustrophobic and spooky and wonderful. It it left me with a a years-long obsession with doomed polar exploration of the 19th century and early 20th century. I really, really love that stuff. And the book I can recommend... Uh, without any reservations whatsoever. His follow-up is called The Abominable, and it's also extremely interesting, though I recommend it more cautiously. It's a much stranger book, and the places it goes will leave some people cold, pun sort of intended, because The Abominable, as as the name might suggest, 
has links to the Abominable Snowman. It's basically about that golden era of mountaineering, which is from about the mid-19th century when, you know, Europeans started scaling and, and conquering the, the various alpine peaks right up until the 1920s, 30s and 40s when they were conquering the Himalayan peaks as well. Um, and the Abominable is about a secret expedition to try and conquer Everest in the mid-1920s using a three-man team uh, mountaineering in what they call alpine style, which is having a small group of people who move very quickly, very swiftly up the mountain, rather than what was kind of de rigueur at the time, which is to have a much larger expedition. And the book is full of wonderful things. It's it's amazing uh, historical research about the, the state of mountaineering at the time. There's a whole lot of folklore and mythology and, and myth-building about the mountaineers, the famous mountaineers, of this time and Dan Simmons really did his homework the book goes off into some strange places towards the end but I, it's such a huge novel it's like a I believe I described it in a review at the time as like a, a giant seagoing liner of a novel that you know takes hundreds of pages to change direction but when it does you know you know you're witnessing something big and epic and and thrilling so very strange book but I, I very interesting especially if you're into that particular time the the mountaineering golden age so the abominable is full of stories of both real life and fictional stories of strange encounters that happened to mountaineers stories of isolation and high elevation and a lot of these stories have a little touch of the supernatural to them now when i was a kid one of my favorite books about the Supernatural was, of course, uh, one of the Osborne Supernatural guides that are being republished at the moment. My my one that I still have today is Haunted Houses, Ghosts and Spectres. And there's a great uh, double-page spread about haunted mountains and ghost stories associated with high elevations. So I'm going to read a short story from that particular book. The book is, of course, written by uh, Maple and Myring, and the original is from 1979. So this story is called The Ghost That Climbed on Everest. And this is just to get us into the frame of mind of a sort of spooky, high-altitude stories before we get to the main story about the Great Grey Man. It was September 26th, 1975, nearly dawn on the moonlit crags of Everest. Mountaineer Nick Estcourt of the Bonington Expedition struggled up the ropes that linked camps four and five. As he reached 300 metres above Camp 4, he saw a figure climbing after him. He could just make out the dark limbs against the bright snow. It looked as though another climber had set out earlier than planned. When he telephoned from Camp 5, Escort was told that no one had left Camp 4. Later that day, Mick Burke, a television cameraman with the team, died in a lone climb to the summit of Everest. When Chris Bonington, the leader of the expedition, returned to Britain, he was handed a strange letter. It had been written early in 1975 by a clairvoyant named Clement Williamson, and then locked in a bank vault for safekeeping. It contained a message Williamson had received from a climber named Andrew Irvin, who had disappeared on Mount Everest in 1924. The message predicted that on the Bonington expedition, a ghost would appear and that someone would die. This picture, or this story, is, is accompanied by an absolutely magnificent illustration, a painting of a lone climber on a lonely slope on Everest with a ghost in the foreground, the, a man in sort of climbing gear, and he's transparent, and you can see the snowy slopes through the shape of his body. It's very dramatic and a little bit scary. 
So that story, I mean, I've been able to... I've been able to find out a few things about it that are true. The Bonington expedition in 1975 was real. Mick Burke, the cameraman who died, that really happened. Um, Andrew Irvin, of course, was a real, a very famous and celebrated uh, climber in the 1920s, and his disappearance was a mystery that was to, you know, create legends in the climbing community for decades. And we probably will mention him again later in this episode. Any of this stuff about the psychic and the ghost? I've only found corroborated in one other location, which at first I was excited because I thought it predated the Osborne book, but in fact it doesn't. It's from a book called The Secret Lives of Ghosts by Paul Gator, and that's from 2013, so I, I can't say for sure where that particular story originally came from. But it is far from being the only uh, high-altitude ghost story out there, so from a, an article from the Business Insider in 2018, so relatively recent, we have this story about a climber named Jeremy Windsor and a person he met on the slopes of Everest who he named Jimmy. So, from Business Insider, they write, Windsor first saw Jimmy on the balcony of Everest, a place Windsor described as a cold, windswept snow shelf high up on the southeast ridge of the mountain. The balcony is 8,200 metres up, well into the death zone. Above 8,000 metres, there is not enough oxygen for people to breathe. That high up, most people rely on supplemental oxygen to survive. Windsor and Jimmy climb together for the next 10 hours. Windsor remembers hearing Jimmy's crampons scraping along the ice, hearing oxygen flow into his face mask, and feeling his weight tug the safety line they shared. They talked as they took rests to gather energy for the next push. When they reached the Hillary Step, the now-collapsed final ridge to climb before, before the summit, Jimmy said cheerio and was gone. So this fits in with a kind of a, a tradition of stories where somebody is in some sort of extreme situation where their life could be threatened and a, a figure appears to them to kind of get them th through and kind of chivvy them along. Uh, this, this character of Jimmy even... Um, reminds Jeremy Windsor when he has to change his oxygen tanks and, and things like that. Almost as if some subconscious part of our own mind is, is being accessed in order to give us the strength we need uh, during a time of crisis. Finally, my last kind of preemptive story about weird happenings, and um, particularly on Mount Everest, there's a very famous climber from this time known as Frank Smith. And in 1930, he, or rather he describes this happening in 1933 he says this is one of the one of the strangest things i ever came across and the reason it struck me largely was because it's used fictionally in a book which i won't spoil because it comes at an important point in the book but a version of this encounter shows up in in a book that i do like and uh, a great use is made of it by the author so i was very excited to find that it's based on a real happening so frank smythe describes in 1933 quote I was making my way back towards Camp 6, when chancing to look up, I saw two dark objects floating in the blue sky. In shape, they resembled kite balloons, except that one appeared to possess short, squat wings. As they hovered motionless, they seemed to pulsate in and out, as though they were breathing. I gazed at them dumbfounded and intensely interested. It seemed to me that my brain was working normally, but to test myself, I looked away. The objects did not follow my gaze, but were still there when I looked back. So I looked away again, but
but this time identified by name various details of the landscape by way of a mental test. Yet, when I again looked back, the objects were still visible. A minute or two, a mist drifted across the northeast shoulder of Everest, above which they were poised. As this thickened, the objects gradually disappeared behind it and were lost to sight. A few minutes later, the mist blew away. I looked again, expecting to see them, but they had vanished as mysteriously as they had appeared. If it was an optical illusion, it was a very strange one. But it is possible that fatigue magnified out of all proportion something capable of a perfectly ordinary and rational explanation. That is all I can say about the matter, and it rests there. Elsewhere, Frank Smythe mentions that one of these two kind of balloon-like animals, besides having wings, at least one of them had a sort of a beak on it, which puts me in mind of the, I think it's from 1913, the Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Horror of the Heights, which posits that uh, once you get up into the high reaches of our world, into the lower ends of the of the upper atmosphere, there is a whole ecology of strange creatures living up there who are kind of like giant gas bags, some of whom are herbivorous and harmless, some of which are carnivorous and more deadly. Again, you have this idea that when, you, when somebody is in these places of incredible isolation and altitude, the brain functions differently. Perhaps they are more susceptible to these particular kinds of hallucinations. Now, to get into the science of that briefly... We have this idea, there's come out this idea in the last couple of years of what is sometimes called, quote, isolated high altitude psychosis. And this is very distinct from uh, what we what we know as altitude sickness. So the, the Live Science website states that once you're above 7,000 metres, they say up until now, doctors have generally thought such psychotic episodes were symptoms of altitude sickness, alongside severe headaches, dizziness and impaired balance. Altitude sickness results from the shortage of oxygen experienced at high altitudes and can trigger a potentially lethal buildup of fluid in the lungs or brain. But in the new analysis, Windsor and his colleagues found that, quote, isolated high-altitude psychosis may be its own medical condition, one distinct from altitude sickness. Basically what they did was they looked at many, many examples of these mysterious encounters, particularly through German records of German mountaineering um, during the 20th century. The Germans were big into this, of course, because they had easy access to the Alps. So there was quite a community in Germany in the 1920s and 30s and, and 40s as well. And some, some of my own um, areas of interest would, would cross into like the work of Heinrich Harrer and uh, Ernst Schaefer, who did the... 1930s Nazi expedition into the into Tibet. So they were looking at all these materials and basically collecting cases where the hallucinations were not linked to the symptoms of altitude sickness, leading them to say, well, it's definitely something different. So that is of note to us because the main story we're talking about today is, of course, the great grey man of Ben McDewey, which is nowhere near the kind of heights we've been talking about on the slopes of Everest. We're not going to posit that uh, people, uh, you know, on these uh, Sc- Scottish mountains are likely to be suffering from any sort of uh, altitude sickness. It just doesn't seem likely. So we have to look for something else to explain what might have been going on. And so to Ben McDewey. Not nearly as high as the, anywhere in the Himalayas or in the Alps, but nonetheless, a spooky and mysterious place all the same. Windswept, it's bare and beautiful. It's full of boulder fields. There are no trees. 
traditionally very snowy, uh, though in recent years um, there is at least one uh, ski resort on the slopes that has come into difficulties just because, amongst other things, there just isn't snow, not nearly as often anymore, and not for as much of the year either. So for much of the year it is misty and difficult to navigate. Many of the hills there are rounded and, and kind of featureless. It's a very, very old mountain range. Um, a lot of erosion has happened over the years and there are no pointy crags, just more like domed hills, which means that it is quite easy to get lost there. So unless you're really, really on it with your navigation, it's a place that will leave you with various feelings of both isolation and disorientation. People end up even getting a little bit paranoid while they're up there. It's the second highest mountain in the British Isles and it's in the Cairngorms National Park which is a, a, a very mountainous national park up in Scotland. The, the peak of Ben McDewey is only 1,300 metres. I say only because we've been talking about Everest. It's still, for this part of the world, that's still very high. Queen Victoria apparently uh, went up there back in 1859, aged about 40. This is just from Wikipedia. My, not, no, no amazing research here, but she apparently wrote, quote, It had a sublime and solemn effect, so wild, so solitary, no one but ourselves and our little party there. I had a little whiskey and water, as the people declared pure water would be too chilling. Well, I, 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 like your, I like the cut of your jib there, Victoria. I just like that quote and decided I would put it in. Now, of course, the most famous thing about Ben McDewey is a particular legend spoken about it, told around fires and mountaineering clubs. The, the idea that there's something mysterious up there. People often report the sounds of being followed, where they're walking and they hear footsteps behind them. When they stop, the footsteps stop, typically. There's also an inexplicable and deep feeling of utter terror associated with this, this being, which puts me in mind of the, the god Pan, of course, who was known for spreading terror in the ancient world with, with his titular Pan Pipes. Um, a, a, a gigantic area of interest around this time, especially in British weird fiction. For more on that, check out our episode about Arthur Macken, which we did recently. But Pan was this, this figure of the wild, of nature. When when he plays his pipe and you, he, you feel that terror, the terror is of isolation. The terror is of you, a civilized being, being out of your element and being in a place which is by definition not civilized you are within nature and you are out of the safety of of quote-unquote civilization and that's where the great gray man somehow ties to perhaps much much older ideas perhaps pagan ideas but also if you look at when the legends first start showing up which is in the 1920s it's still at that time when the idea of pan is very important within sort of British fringe thinking, British mystical thinking, and also within various kinds of the Celtic revival, which were still very powerful at that time. Combined with all of this is a sense of being watched or followed by something when you're on the slopes of Ben McDewey. Crowning all of these feelings, these, these odd feelings, is the idea of a figure, a dark black or grey figure. Locals call him Anfar Liat Moor, or the Great Grey Man. Apologise to anyone out there who speaks Scots Gaelic. I speak Irish and the languages are similar enough that I would interpret it in that particular way. It's often written um far liam moor rather than on. That could be down to differences between the two tongues. 
my apologies to anybody who is knowledgeable about Scott Scalic, but it's close enough that I feel comfortable giving some interpretation of it. So he's the great grey man. Now to some, he's a cryptozoological entity. He's a, he's a potentially a flesh and blood, <clears throat> hairy hominid animal-like creature in the vein of Sasquatch or the abominable snowman. And in fact, while I disagree with this interpretation myself, the timeline does match up. So the, the main stories about the Great Grey Man, the, the foundation of the legend, are stories that happen between the 1920s and the 1940s, which is an era both of, you know, resurgent of interest in mountaineering around the world, but also when the abominable snowman stories, the Yeti stories, are big, big, big news back in Europe. For more information on this stuff, I recommend you check out our episode, Howard Bury's Footprints. It's all about the origins of the Yeti legend. A lot of stuff about uh, Colonel Charles Howard Bury, who was an Anglo-Irish explorer and a tremendously interesting guy in his own right. And I'm very proud of that episode. So if it's something you think you'd be interested in, I do recommend you check it out. It's got all the details of that sort of mountaineering world of the 20s in Ireland and England. And uh, we'll... We'll have mentions of our boy Howard Bury at least once more, I think, in this episode. Let's get to the foundational story of the Great Grey Man. This is the one you will always hear as being the very first story uh, associated with the tale. Now, the date of this is a little bit questionable. So, it's about a fellow by the name of Professor J. Norman Colley. The story is usually told as having originally happened either in 1890 or 1891, which is, of course, prior to the 1920s high period of sort of Yeti mania. But there were stories that go back that far, though they are a little bit sketchier. The idea of a wild man living in, in the, the wild regions of the world was not unknown at this time. So what do we know about J. Norman Colley? He was a very well-respected mountaineer and scientist in his day. He once, I like this, he once taught at the Cheltenham Ladies College, despite being noted by his niece as, quote, not a ladies' man, and, uh, quote, found that schoolgirls in bulk were more than he could stomach. So, yeah, great, lovely, uh, lovely bit of note there. He was well-known as a chemist and was, in fact, on the in the Royal Society of Edinburgh. So, a well-to-do scientist and mountaineer. He climbed all over the UK. He has peaks named after him in Scotland. And he did, uh, I think after this period, after the 1890s, he did some climbing in the Himalayas as well. He, if you look at pictures of this guy, man, he was the classic 1890s gentleman climber. He's wearing tweed, he's got a pipe. He's wearing those kind of high tintin trousers with the with the socks pulled up really high. Absolutely love all that stuff. Now, where did his story about the Great Grey Man come from? It depends. So, supposedly he once told the story at a meeting of mountaineers in New Zealand, closer to the time when it happened, like sort of <clears throat> in 1891 thereabout. We know this because there was a newspaper write-up of this particular story, but apart from that, it didn't make much of a splash. However, in 1925, and quite a bit later, he told the story to a meeting of the Cairngorm Club. So the Cairngorm Park is where is where Ben McDewey is. And this is when the story really took off. And this is where mostly you will read about it. The reason I mentioned the earlier the earlier telling of it <clears throat> is because of a sort of a chronological element which I will address in time. So I'm going to read his quote from a book called Yeti, An Abominable History by Graham Hoyland, which is a really fun book. So this is 
Professor J. Norman Colley's original story of meeting the great grey man. He wrote, I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. For every few steps I took, I heard a crunch, and then another crunch as if someone was walking after me, but taking steps three or four times the length of my own. As the eerie crunch, crunch sounded behind me, I was seized with terror and took to my heels, staggering blindly among the boulders for four or five miles. Collie recounted his experience at the 1925 annual general meeting of the Cairngorm Club, and soon afterwards received a letter from the noted Scottish explorer Dr. Alexander Kellis, the first man to recognise the value of Sherpas in summit climbs. Now, as much as I really love this book Yeti by Graham Hoyland, and I have used it as a source on various episodes, there's a little bit of a chronological mix-up here that I can't quite get behind, and we'll see what happens. So this guy, Alexander Kellis, who supposedly wrote a letter to J. Norman Colley after his 1925 talk at the Kingorns Club, has a problem, because while Alexander Kellis was a real guy and was also a respected sort of 1920s explorer, he was on Howard Bury's expedition in 1921. This was the reconnaissance expedition to the Himalayas where the story of the, the abominable snowman footprints really took off. But he died on that expedition. He had a heart attack in a village before they even got to the bottom of Everest. And that was in 1921. So there's no way he could have written to J. Norman Colley after 1925. So in some places I have this sort of incongruity perhaps solved by saying, well, maybe this letter happened earlier. Maybe he wrote this after hearing about the 1890-1891 talk to the the New Zealand climbers, which is possible given that it was uh, in the newspapers. So I've done a bunch of research on this. That's the best I can come up with, unless somebody out there knows better. So he might have been responding to the earlier version of this tale and maybe the two just got conflated in the telling somewhere along the way. So what is it that Alexander Kellis said that he saw? Well this is his from from that newspaper article and I'm taking it from a website called vacationscotland.biz and the newspaper wrote Kellis and his brother Henry had been chipping for quartz crystals in the late afternoon below the summit of Ben McDewey when they both saw a giant grey figure come towards them out of the mist. The figure then momentarily disappeared from view as it entered a dip. The two men made a run for it, allegedly pursued into Cora Ect- Oh, goodness. Etkankan. Do apologise, guys. Scots Gaelic is sometimes a little bit different from Irish. Thanks to his time in Nepal, Dr. Kellis had heard similar tales of the Yeti, and in some parallel universe, he imagined this being as some long-lost cousin. The next important encounter happens in 1904. So a naturalist by the name of Hugh Welch, also with his brother, they camped near the summit uh, while on a sort of species-finding expedition. They were looking for arachnids primarily, and they record they reported hearing, quote, slurring footstep sounds following them around on the slope. Our next significant encounter comes from a lady by the name of Wendy Wood, who was a prominent artist in the 1920s and 30s, but was probably more famous as being a Scottish nationalist. 
Interestingly, she was born in England, but whenever anybody pointed this out to her, she trotted out the old line, one does not have to be a horse to be born in a stable. Now, she was using this in a completely different context than the way you would normally hear this, certainly here in Ireland. That quote is always brought out when people are talking about the history of the Anglo-Irish, and in particular, it's connected to uh, Wellington, who was Anglo-Irish himself. If I remember correctly, he didn't actually say that. It was said about him by the famous Irish nationalist Daniel O'Connell. But the idea is that quote is usually thrown around to mean somebody who would have been born in Ireland but of Anglo-Irish stock in the old days, saying, just because I happen to be born in the Celtic fringes doesn't mean that I'm a proper good old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon stock. Whereas here, Wendy Wood is using it to say, just because I happen to be born in England doesn't mean that I can't be you know, a Celtic Scottish nationalist, which is very interestingly, very interesting. So in her 1930 book, The Secret of Spey, she says that on an earlier trip to Ben McDewey, she heard strange wailing while passing through the Lairgrew Pass, and then a voice speaking to her from, as if from the air. And interestingly, it was speaking Gaelic. So I mean, it makes sense to me that she would interpret it that way. She was into this kind of Celtic twilight thing. She was interested in the promotion of a Celtic identity. It is absolutely natural to me that she would interpret a mystical encounter up in the, you know, the the weird, mysterious, misty, shrouded uh, Celtic northern fringe, that she would interpret this in in the light of a a sort of pseudo-imagined, you know, ancient Celtic mysterious past. Of course it would be speaking Gaelic to her. I absolutely love that. It's really part of the whole, you know, move towards re-enchanting the landscape that was happening across Britain and Ireland at this time. As with the other stories, she immediately feels this intense terror and runs down the hill and makes it back to the the house where she's staying, which is a mainstay of all of these stories. In 1943, another naturalist by the name of Alexander Tunian um, writes in the well rather this supposedly happened in 1943 but he didn't write about it until 1958 in the Scots magazine so again I'm reading from uh, Yeti by Graham Hoyland so Alexander Tunian wrote in October 1943 I spent a 10-day leave climbing alone in the Cairngorms one afternoon just as I reached the summit cairn of Ben McDewey mist swirled across the Larry grew and enveloped the mountain. The atmosphere became dark and oppressive. A fierce, bitter wind whisked among the boulders, and and an odd sound echoed through the mist. A loud footstep, it seemed. Then another, and another. I peered about in the mist, here rent and tattered by eddies of wind. A strange shape loomed up, receded, came charging at me. Without hesitation, I whipped out the revolver and fired three times at the figure. When it still came on, I turned and hared down the path, reaching Glenderry in a time that I have never bettered. You may ask, was it really the Farley Moor? Frankly, I think it was. Now, I will point out that back in the Osborne Haunted Houses book, on the page of Spooky Mountain Encounters, there's a wonderful illustration of this encounter with a man in sort of 1940s climbing get-up, shooting at uh, a figure, uh, the artist's interpretation of the great grey man. And this is, it's a very small picture, 
but it's the spookiest version I've ever seen. The, he, he's portrayed here more like a spirit than like a yeti. He's like a transparent grey figure. He's incredibly tall, but he's thin. And you can just about make out the dark circles of his eyes, but he, uh, he looks angry and and imposing. And it's it's a small picture, but it's it's quite disturbing. So that's probably where I first came across this story was in that particular book. Now, I'm being fussy about dates here. So this supposedly happened in 1943. Why is he writing about it in 1958 in the Scots magazine? What else was happening in 1958? Well, if you've listened to our Bigfoot episodes, you know that 1958 was the year in which Bigfoot mania really took off. That's the year when Bigfoot hits the mainstream because, of course, that is when the famous Jerry Crew footprints in California become world-famous news. Now, I don't know exactly when Alexander Tunian wrote this in 1958, whether it was before or after the, 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 the American footprints became big news, but basically something was in the air. The, the very year before, you had the William Rowe sighting, also in California, and uh, Bigfoot was on the verge of becoming an international celebrity. So, interestingly, it's just interesting to, to line up these different happenings in different parts of the world and to see where one, thi- one sort of culture might be influencing another. Our next encounter returns to the Peter Densham, who we uh, quoted right at the beginning. So in the 1940s and for most of the war, he was the leader of the Cairngorms RAF rescue team. So again, his story I've taken from the Vacation Scotland website. So they write, In 1945, towards the end of the Second World War, local forester and walker Peter Densham took advantage of a day off and decided to climb up onto Ben McDewey, arriving at the summit cairn around noon. It was a clear day and the views spectacular. Ben Nevis, the only peak in Britain higher, stood proud in the distant hazy sunshine. Conditions were perfect for a good day in the hills. However, as it often happens, a thick mist soon descended and he decided to polish off his lunch and make his way back down. Knowing the hill well, he was in no way disturbed by the mist and poor visibility. Packed up, he set off, but had barely gone any distance when he soon heard the familiar crunch, crunch behind him. Intrigued rather than afraid, he went to investigate, thinking of the grey man and the paranoia of others. But as he got closer to where the sound was coming from, he too was quite violently overtaken by an intense, primal desire to flee. Without even thinking, Some deep instinct switched on, and he too was soon running full speed to the valley below. Blinded, he just missed careering off the steep cliffs of Lurker's Crag to certain death. Peter Densham was left shaken and utterly convinced that something unnatural stalked the mountain. He never went back again. That's a version of the story which tallies closely to the others we've heard focuses more on the, the, the feeling that you're being watched and the, the sudden panic than it does of seeing a physical being of any kind. But there's another version of this story which I found in a book called The Big Grey Man of Ben McDewey, Myth or Monster by Affleck Grey, who retells this story but maintains that Densham actually enjoyed a psychic conversation with the great grey man before he ran away. So... 
interesting how people interpret this story in slightly different ways depending on whether they want it to seem like a like a physical being or more of a spooky folkloric metaphysical one now it's time to get to some explanations the usual explanation that's trotted out for this is something called the Brocken Spectre, which is worth mentioning. The Brocken, of course, is a mountain in the Harris Mountains region in Germany, which is a very folklore-soaked area indeed. It's where Harry Price, the famous ghost investigator, got involved in a rather silly ceremony with Alistair Crowley back in the 1930s, where they apparently tried to sacrifice a goat and turn it into a, a fair maiden on the top of uh, one of, on the top of this mountain. Uh, and it's also an area with lots of stories about the devil having a, a school for teaching people the, the black arts and that sort of a thing. So, yeah, an area that's got a lot of folklore associated with it. But one of the stories there is that there are dark, tall figures similar to the Great Grey Man. And the reason being is that there's something that has come to be called a Brocken Spectre. And we call it that because I think it was first identified on that particular German mountain. The idea being, if you are climbing a mountain... Uh, on a particular time of day with particular weather conditions you may end up in a scenario where the the fog the mist or the cloud is below you and if the sun is low enough in the sky especially towards the end of the day you may have your own shadow cast onto the mist below you and if the angle is low enough this figure will appear to be very tall so looking down into the mist below you on the side of the mountain you might see what appears to be a giant a tall black figure uh, you can usually spot if it's a real Brock Inspector because it will imitate your own movements. And another unusual sort of atmospheric phenomena that's associated with it is a halo, a little bit like a like a mini rainbow that appears around the head of the Brock Inspector, which is quite a common element of it as well. So folks generally say that, well, if you're seeing mysterious dark figures on mountainsides, that may be, it may be the Brock Inspector. And these have been recorded on Ben McDewey. And actually there was uh, some some good photographs of one uh, in a Kerry Mountain here in Ireland that were doing the rounds online only this week. So I'll, if I can find them again, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Do I think this is a good explanation? It's not a bad one. It doesn't cover everything. It covers, I mean, visual uh, sightings of the creature. It doesn't have much to say about the feelings of panic and the feeling of being watched. And I think that has more to do with the isolated and lonely nature of the location and human psychology than it does to any physical atmospheric phenomena. And I don't really think that the answers to cases like this are going to uh, lie with atmospheric phenomena, unfortunately. I don't think a scientific answer is what's going to do the trick here rather than a, well, not a hard science one anyway, more of a psychological one. As I said at the top, I don't really fancy this as an example of a flesh and blood relic hominid creature. It's much more obvious to me that this is a folkloric creature. Whether or not he speaks Gaelic and whether or not he communicates with people psychically, he has much more in common with the mythological Pan than he does with the abominable snowman of the, Himala of the Himalayas. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to change the way I say that, am I? Lest you think that this is a, a creature only found in the past, in 2008, a, a ghost hunter went out searching for him deliberately and was camping on Ben McDewey. He claims that during the night, some Yeti-like creature attacked his tent, tore holes in it, and stomped all around the outside, leaving two-foot footprints. 
However, he was unable to provide much evidence for this because on their on the way down, himself and his compatriot got into trouble where one of them kind of fell into a, 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 a sort of a coma based on cold and hypothermia. They had to be rescued by mountain rescue workers. So that story just shows you that these things are still happening and the mountain itself still has a certain aura of mystery attached to it. To wrap things up, I'm going to read a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. This is from Constancy to an Ideal Object. And I think he'll mention a little something that you should find familiar. So Coleridge writes, And art thou nothing, such thou art as when, the woodman winding westward up the glen, at wintry dawn where o'er the sheep tracks maze, the viewless snow mist weaves a glistening haze. Sees full below him, gliding without tread, an image with a glory round its head. The enamoured rustic worships its fair hues, nor knows he makes the shadow he pursues. And a glory here is another name for the halo around the head of the Brock Inspector. Hopefully you've enjoyed that, folks. My name is Kian. This is White Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. If you have suggestions, comments, uh, polite corrections, uh, ideas for another, uh, other episodes, we'd love to know all about it. All you have to do is reach out to us, get in touch on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, and Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Next week, it's going to be Borley Rectory, and we have a few key surprises for you next week as well, all going well. So as always... Uh, we like reviews. We like you to share one episode with at least one person who you think might like it. That really, really helps a lot. I always say I'll read the interviews or the reviews out, and I'm not always so good at doing that. So here's one from listener Vicky. She says, I love this podcast for its balanced interpretations of all things mysterious and eerie, refreshing to hear good critical takes without pessimism. It's fun and perfect, spooky season listening. Thanks to the in-depth research behind the show, I'm learning lots more about stories that have freaked me out since I was a kid. Give this podcast a listen. So thanks, Figgy. That's all we can ask for. If you do a review, we'd be delighted to read that one out as well. So we'll catch you next time. As always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in.